You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. I wondered what it's like to uh, come into a church where they sing the psalms uh, without accompaniment and uh, someone stands up, strikes a note or two, and then everybody seems to know not only the words, but the tune, and, and on it goes. And uh, if you're really a stranger to that, you probably uh, will be comforted to know it's only in the last 150 years or so, maybe a little longer, that Presbyterians in Scotland have uh, had any musical accompaniment. And since if you look around, there are some people who are older than 150 years in this congregation, uh, we've, just, we've just pick it up by osmosis. And it's amazing how quickly you get used to it. Well, our uh, next scripture reading is from Philippians chapter 1. And we are this morning in the third message of a series on Philippians that in a few weeks' time will flip to the evening. And the theme this morning, as you will see from Philippians chapter 1 verses 9 to 11, is prayer. If you're using the church Bible, you should find that, I think, on page 1179. If 1179 has a number, the page doesn't have a number. You didn't know that the first chapter of every book of the Bible in the Bibles that we use does not have a number, but you'll find it around there. So, Philippians chapter 1 and verses 9 through 11, Paul has been telling the Philippians how he prays for them and how he longs for them. And now he gives us, in a sense, a, a report of the prayer. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. You may never actually have ever in your Christian life heard anyone pray just like that, Many years ago, I I calculated it was 1980, uh, a lifetime ago, I had the privilege of being visited by the acquisitions editor of uh, what at that time was the largest uh, publisher in the United Kingdom, and he was the director of its uh, religious books, Arm, and he'd come to ask me to write a book, 1980. he said, we'd like you to write a book for us. And so, obviously, flattered, I said, as you would say, well, what on? And then I was both flattered and my heart sank when he said, we'd like you to write a book on prayer. Now, the end of the story is they did publish a couple of books by me, neither of which was on prayer. I said to him, somewhat reluctantly, 
I said, you know, I don't think I'm really mature enough to write a book on prayer. And I'm sure, I added quickly, I'm, I'm sure there are quite a number of men who would, who would write excellent books on prayer. I hadn't met too many people at this level, so, you know, I didn't know what was about to be said. And he said, well, he said, uh, with a little smile, a very gracious man, little smile, he said, well, well, who would you suggest? So, I kind of went to the top of the tree of Christian teachers in the 1980s, whose names those of you over 30 or 40 would immediately recognize, and I mentioned one of the most senior of them, and he, he gave this little smile, and he said to me, well, he said, actually, he didn't look me in the eye. He said, actually, we've already asked him. <laughs> uh, but, but, so, he said, who, who else? So, I went down a notch and mentioned an almost equally legendary Christian teacher. Eyes went down, little smile. Well, actually, we've already asked him, and I tried one more time. And then I realized, of course, that these men felt the way, even although I was half their age, I felt. Who is able to write a book on prayer? And at the same time, I had this feeling that has lingered with me since, that I don't think I know many Christians, actually I'm not sure I know any Christians, that if you ask them, how did you learn to pray? They would say, I read this really good book on prayer. Now, really good books on prayer are really good, but they're not usually how we learn to pray. Do you remember when one of His disciples, this is in Luke chapter 11, said to Jesus, after listening to Him pray, and that's significant, after listening to Him pray, one of the disciples went up to Him and said, Master, teach us to pray. We know John the Baptist taught his disciples to pray. Will you teach us to pray? And Jesus said, well, pray like this, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, and so on and so forth. What happened there? Why did Jesus not say, have you not read my book on prayer? Why did He not say, now listen to this, I'm, I'm, we're going to sit here for half an hour, and I'm going to dictate to you the outline of a book on prayer. And once I'm gone, you can write that book, and you can stick it at the back of the New Testament, Jesus' little book on how to pray. Now, what, what fired up that disciple to pray was, first of all, he heard Jesus pray. And his instinctive response, I think, must have been to say, I wish I could pray like that. And then what Jesus did was not to, not to give him principles about prayer, not to, in a sense, discuss the theology of prayer and say to him, you'll never be able to pray until you've got the theology of prayer straight. He kind of said to him, you'll learn to pray by praying. And that's true for most of us, isn't it? We learn to pray partly by being drawn into the presence of God by the way other people pray, and also by praying ourselves. 
And in a sense, this is the value of what Paul is doing here with the Philippians. Dear friends, his, his crowning joy, he called them as a congregation. Dear, dear friends, he's teaching them, and through this letter, he's teaching us how to pray by telling us that he prays for them, by telling us that he has a a longing for them, a, a love for them, a passion for them. He feels for them. He understands them. And he says, this is, this is how I'm praying. And I think without him having to say it, the Philippians, as they read this description of Paul's prayer, would themselves instinctively, if they were Christians, respond and, and say, I wish I could pray like that. I need to learn to pray like that. And it's very interesting just how this little prayer falls out. It's only three verses, is it? Nine, ten, and eleven. And yet it's, it's densely packed. And in that sense, it's very genuine. You know, when, when we pray, we don't stop and think, let me give attention to the rules of grammar here so that it's perfectly clear to God exactly what I'm asking. And if you read the scholars on these verses, you, you can sense from them the, the difficulty of untangling everything that Paul is saying here. Just, just exactly what is it that he is praying? Finished praying before our breakfast this morning, saying grace as we say, and then when I'd said amen, I said, and thank you, Lord, for the porridge. Because I'd started the prayer, and I hadn't got to the porridge. You ever done that? You know, you, you get into it, and, and uh, well, let me try and reduce this prayer. Let me try and analyze this prayer so that we see that Paul is praying for three particular things for these Philippians. The first of them is in verse 9. He's praying that as individuals and as a fellowship, there may be an abundance of love among them. He says here, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Now, interesting, isn't it? He doesn't, he doesn't say, I'm praying that your love for God will abound. He's not saying, I'm praying your love for me will abound. He's not saying, I pray your love for one another may abound. And perhaps the reason is because all three of these in Paul's mind belong together. That the love of God for us, shed abroad in our hearts, as Paul says in Romans 5, by the Holy Spirit, creates in us simultaneously a love for Him that reproduces itself in our love for others. That's such a consistent element in the Bible's teaching, isn't it? You, as you grow in love for the Lord, you grow in love for all those who belong to the Lord. And this love, as we know from the New Testament, is not a love that is driven so much by emotion, although it has emotion in it. It's driven by valuation. It's the result of how much we value the object of our affection, the object of our love. And Paul is saying, this is what the gospel will do. This is what the gospel 
recreates among God's people the inflooding of the love of God for us that flows out the way He has, as it were, as the way He has placed a value on us that we don't have in ourselves. This is the point. How much has He valued us? He has placed our lives in the balance and said, now, how highly do I value them? And He has placed His Son's life, very literally, in the balance. I value them at the cost of the life of my own beloved Son. And He's saying, this is, this is what I'm praying for you, that your love for one another may be Jesus-like, that it may not be the kind of love that characterizes often the way we use the language today that is, is all-taking. Isn't it interesting that that language is so often used nowadays in the context of taking something? I, I love X or Y, and I'm taking. Whereas in the Bible, the love of God is not a taking love, it's a giving love. And the same here. I remember years ago reading a little couple of lines, love ever gives, forgives, ever stands with open hands, and while it lives, it gives and gives and gives. And this is love's prerogative, to give and give and give. But there's also a sense, Paul seems to understand, that, you know, we sometimes say love is blind. And there is a sense in which that's true, because, because love is a, is a dynamic giving that, that needs eyes and directions to, to know what it is that we are to give and how it is that we are to give. And so, Paul is praying here that their love will abound, notice the language he uses more and more, in knowledge and depth of insight. You know how we sometimes today speak about emotional intelligence? Well, your emotions don't have any intelligence, do they? That's part of the problem. What do we mean by that? Well, here's an illustration. You know somebody who is super bright. I mean, you know somebody who steps into university and you know that with relative ease, they're going to come out of university with a first-class honors degree. But emotionally, they're children. They, they don't know how to function. They're angular. They're, they're impolite. They lack emotional intelligence. And you know, there's a sense in which we can also, our love can lack intelligence. Um, and many of us suffer from that lack of intelligence. We, we really do care, but we don't know what to do. I know it's sometimes a man thing, isn't it? You're just, you're just amazed that somehow or another your wife knows what to do, or a friend. She, she just always knows what to do. It's, it's not necessarily that he or she loves more. It's that in that love there is a discernment. There's an understanding of what needs to be done. And that comes from the Lord, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, just think of it this way. God could have so loved the world and then said to himself, I have no idea what to do. 
That's not difficult to understand because, you know, you couldn't have thought up the cross. You couldn't have thought up a way in which a holy, just God could pardon sinners remaining just, satisfying justice, and at the same time manifesting His love. But you see, He knows how to do it. And His love, the love that Paul is praying for us, is a, is a love that will know how to do it. And what's kind of interesting here is that Paul is praying for loving discernment for the Philippians, and I think we can assume that his own prayer for them shows loving discernment. Now, what's the point of that? Well, let me put it this way. When did you last in your prayer about a situation or a person? When, when was the last time right at the top of your priorities was, oh Lord, in this situation, may their love abound in understanding and discernment. My friend Derek Thomas often speaks about our prayers as organ recitals. May this be true, may that be true, somebody's leg, somebody's arm, somebody's ear, somebody's situation. Isn't it interesting that Paul makes no mention of that? It's not that he doesn't care. It's that he cares about the things that really matter in the situation. And that is, no matter what God's actual purposes may be, the love of those for whom we are praying may abound in knowledge and understanding. Because at the end of the day, that, that makes the difference, doesn't it? That makes a difference to our Christian witness. Other people have broken legs, broken arms. Other people need healing. But other people don't expect, nor do they ask, that in the midst of the difficulties that Christians are experiencing, their love will abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. And there's surely something important for us to learn here. So he prays in verse 9 that there will be an abundance of love. He prays then in the rest of verse 9 and into verse 10, that there will be among them a real pursuit of excellence. I'm praying that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of, of, insight, of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best. Isn't that interesting? So that you may be able to discern what is best, or the English Standard Version has, so that you may be able to approve what is excellent. But the verb he uses, I think, has the nuance not just of, well, I know that's best, but that I choose and I pursue what is best, what is excellent. What do I mean by that? You know, sometimes you, you go into a shop department store, you want to buy something, and there are various kinds of it, and the, you know, the person who's serving you sh shows them all. And uh, instead of saying, I'm going to buy that one, you say, I think that one's best. And everybody in the conversation understands what you mean by saying, I think that one's best, is not I'm grading them, and I, I think that's superior, uh, but cheerio. 
No, you both understand what you mean by saying, I think that's the best one, is that's the one I'm going to buy. And that's the sense here. It's the same, it's the same language that's used in Romans 12, 1 and 2, present our bodies as living sacrifices to the Lord. And the result of this is that we discover in our experience that God's will is good and perfect and acceptable. It's not just a mental decision. That's the best thing. It's a spiritual commitment to pursue what is best. Now, why would he be praying for that? I think if I know my own heart, the reason is because we don't always do that. Maybe, to be honest, we don't often do that. We're kind of addicted, even as Christians, and of course, he's thinking about our Christian lives here and our church fellowship and family, kind of addicted to doing better than other people, and then accepting whatever level of mediocrity is better than other people. You know, one of the most influential theologians of the 20th century, whose uh, exposition of the Christian faith is that wide. So, some of you will know to whom I refer. In that shelf of books in which he works his way through the teaching of the Christian faith, he has a very interesting 80-page section on the subject of sin as sloth, or do we say sloth? You ever thought of that? I've thought of that a lot. I know what he's talking about. Sloth? What does that mean? You remember the wonderful pictures in the book of Proverbs? The, the slothful man reaches his hand out to the bowl. There's there's grapes in the bowl or an apple in the bowl. And he's, I, just, I just don't think I have the energy to, to, to bring them back to my mouth. It's a beautiful picture, but it's how we are. We are so content with mediocrity, so used to mediocrity, that when we when we encounter what is really excellent in spiritual reality, it's something of a shock to us. And often it's only when we encounter it that we, we realize how much we have put up with mediocrity. Now, the church is often addicted to this. Um, what can we get by by doing? And sometimes in the church, you know, it's always fascinated me that sometimes people are prepared to put up with standards in the life of the church that they would never accept in their own homes and families. So easy to be addicted to mediocrity. And it, and it has this enervating influence on us, doesn't it? Um, you know, energy seems often to create more energy, but sloth just this creates more sloth till you get used to it. And he's praying that that won't be the case in the Philippians. And once or twice in this letter, I think he gives them little hints. He, he says, for example, about himself in Philippians chapter 3, I know I haven't arrived. 
And I'm pressing on to take hold of that for which Jesus Christ took hold of me. I'm pressing on. That's what he's praying for the Philippians. That rather than being addicted to mediocrity in their Christian lives, they'll be filled with a new zeal for what is really the very best. Uh, and he's, he's praying this for them because he prays it for himself. That's a great thing, isn't it? That, that, really, that really touches the conscience, doesn't it? How easy it is for me by comparing myself with others to rest satisfied with the mediocrity plus one degree that I've attained. And he's saying, no, no, no. I'm praying that you will not only pursue what is excellent, I'm praying that you will choose the excellent, that you'll live out the excellent, that you'll never be satisfied with mediocrity. You know, I've sometimes said, I think Christians often think it really must have been great of the Apostle Paul as your minister. I'm not so sure. You know, you could maybe put up with his sermons, these prayers that would get you. So he's praying for these Philippians that their love will abound. He's praying for them that they will pursue what is excellent. And he's doing this thirdly in verses 10 and 11 because he wants them to grow in holiness. I'm praying this so that you may be able to discern what is best and be pure and blameless until the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's the end of mediocrity, isn't it? When this prayer is answered, I'm praying that you may be pure and blameless. The Greek word pure he uses here, um, the people who are interested in the history of words have sometimes suggested that it, it may come from the idea of taking something out into the light to, to see it in its, its real colors, to see if, if there are any flaws in it. Um, I remember as a, a child, I don't know if this happens any longer because I, I try not to shop. Um, uh, <laughs> Amazon Prime does it all. Um, I remember going with my mother if she was buying something, and we're talking about the 1950s now, and, you know, there would be a dress or a cardigan or something like that, and she would, say to the, she would say to the person in the shop, some of you did this, didn't you? Is it all right if I take it out into the street? I mean, they call for the security people, wouldn't they, or the men in white coats if you said that nowadays. Well, what was my mother talking about? Was she a klepto? You know, am I the child of a kleptomaniac? No, no. She and, and the, the shop essentially sure. And she took it out into the street because she wanted to see the true color of the garment. You know, it's okay in this light, but you know, when I take it out there, what, what's it going to look like? Um, you know, some some of you may. For all I know, some of you are criminologists and you do all these flashy things I can only watch on CSI with, with light and, you know you, you know, you do all your hokey pokey stuff and then, you know, the goggles go on and, and, of course, you explain to your colleague who's already got two degrees in criminology and understands perfectly what's going on. This is what we're doing and, and there, there are the bloodstains. 
How about that? I mean, how about that prayer for my life? That, that when, when the divine CSI group, as it were, examines the church in Philippi and shines these magic lights, or when I stand in the presence of the God who is light, and whose light is so pure that its heat burns away every defilement. Is that what I want? Those of you who know C.S. Lewis's marvelous little book with its odd idiosyncrasies, The Great Divorce, remember the Remember the ghostly figure who has the, the little red lizard on his shoulder that keeps telling him what to do, and the, the angel comes along and says, do you want me to kill it so that you'll be free from this, this bondage that you're in? And, and he says, well, you're hurting me. Get back, you're hurting me. And the angel says to him, this is, Lewis got this straight out of Jesus, didn't he? I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. I said I would kill it. Think about that with your own impurities. That even as we speak about these things, the, the light of God's Word, nobody needs to say anything. I don't need to say anything. They don't need to be named. The light of God's Word and God's presence shines upon those impurities. And he says, do you want me to kill them? And you try and wriggle out. But as he comes near, you do say to him, you're hurting me, you're hurting me. And he does say to you, I, I didn't say it wouldn't hurt. But I did say I would kill it. And one day he will fully and finally, but even now Paul is praying that this may be the case with them so that when the light shines on them, they may be, they may be the true Christian color through and through, filled with the fruit of righteousness, which is probably the same things he's speaking about in Galatians 5 when he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit of God is righteousness, he says in Romans 8, and in all those marvelous fruit. Um, we eat fruit and we say, that wasn't as good. And Paul's praying, I pray that you Philippian Christians may never find yourself in a situation where people say, I've met Christians in Philippi. They were pretty ropey quality. So this is a marvelous prayer. This is a prayer that not only on that final day the day of Jesus Christ that he's referred to before and now he refers to again in verse 10, pure and blameless until the day of Christ. We will be pure and blameless, he says, on the day of Christ. But he's praying that these Philippians will be kept pure and blameless until the day of Jesus Christ. Now, here's something don't you kind of assume that Paul really knew what he was doing when he prayed for these Philippians? And that he understood that these were really their, their three great needs. 
that their love might abound, that they might pursue what is excellent, that they might be pure and blameless and filled with the fruits of righteousness to the glory and praise of God. Remember the first question of the Shorter Catechism, what is man's chief end? Man's chief end is to, well, it's to live to the glory and praise of God, isn't it? To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Paul, in writing this letter, which is often called the letter of joy, is just full of joy, has surely got it right that it's when these Philippians live their lives to the glory and praise of God that they will actually enjoy God. They will enjoy being transformed. They will enjoy giving themselves to one another in love. They will enjoy choosing and doing the best. They will enjoy seeing the answers to Paul's prayer working out in their own lives. And that leaves us just with this question. Well, what, do we, what are we to do if we understand that Paul's praying will glorify God, but we don't enjoy? I mean, even as a Christian, I, I, I don't really enjoy. Well, that's where this little expression that he uses here in verse 11 is so important. He says, all this comes through Jesus Christ. This doesn't come because we say, I need to learn to pray like Paul. This doesn't even come by me saying, I understand the three chief needs in my life. This comes only, actually, when I come to Jesus Christ. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And you see what he's really praying for us here is that where our Christian lives actually began, not in our accomplishments nor in our prayers, but by us coming to Jesus Christ, is the place and the one to whom we need to keep on returning in order that the desire to glorify God, in order the experience of enjoying God, in order that the fruition of this kind of prayer may be something that characterizes our lives too. Oh, my friends, we're so slothful in this, aren't we? and we need to pray for one another. We need to pray one another out of our spiritual sloth and into the glory of God. And we need to look to Jesus Christ and know that behind Paul, He is ever-living in order to make intercession for us, to bring us from our sloth to energy and love for God. So, may He help us as He teaches us and energizes us through this part of His Word. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we listen to Jesus praying in the Gospels and in the prayers that are recorded there. 
to listen to Paul praying in his epistles. And we come to you and we, we often feel that we've never really prayed. We brought our lists to you, but they've been without focus. We brought our needs, but we've not really known what to pray for. And so we come to you today to pray that you would write words like these on our hearts, in our lives, and into our prayers, that we may pray these things for ourselves, abundance of love, pursuit of the excellent, real desire to be holy like Jesus, and that as we pray these things for ourselves, we'll begin to pray them more and more for one another, pray them for the whole church here in St. Peter's and for the whole church of Jesus Christ spread throughout the face of the earth. Thank you for your word. Hide it in our hearts, we pray, and by your Holy Spirit, make it bear much fruit in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.